Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time that you have set aside for us. God, thank you that you've made this a regular occurrence in our life. God, that we pattern our lives, God, according to the pattern that you have set for us. God, on the eighth day, God, you began to work and thrive after you created the earth. God, there was, there was goings on. And on the eighth day, the God, the church gathered together. So we want to work. We want to thrive. We want to enjoy what it is to be here together so that when you send us out of this place in a few hours, God, we have a message. We have a purpose. We have a goal and a function that we know is tied to each other. God, we want to go out from here changed. God, we want to go out from here because we have heard from you, because we have met you in your living word. Be glorified this morning. Bless our ears and our mouths that we may hear, we may say the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Truly, truly. So in today's passage, we have a figure of speech, as verse 6 tells us. Um, it's, it's a parable of sorts. Not a parable like the other synoptic gospels would present where they would have a lot of direct, you know, we can, we can make direct applications. You get the parable of the, <clears throat> the prodigal son. Right? You, can, you can build into that some direct application, who the father is, who the, the sons are, and, and their kind of application. This, this figure of speech gets kind of confusing because you have a lot of information that's given, and then you get a little bit of detail about one aspect of it. And then, as soon as you think you kind of get there, in verse 11, Jesus quit, completely switches gears and starts talking about, a completely different part of the same culture, the uh, shepherding culture. And so we'll get to, next week, we'll get to 11 through 18, 19, um, and talking about Jesus as the shepherd. So there will be a little bit of crossover, and it's, I'm trying to keep that limited. There'll probably be a few questions that come up as we're talking through Jesus being the door, but I'm trying to really limit that in here. But if there are questions, please email those to me this week. Or just shoot me a text, whatever it is, and I'll do my best if, it, if it's uh, uncovered this week to make sure that that question is answered next week. Because I know once we get down further in the passage, there gets to be, wait a minute, what does that exactly mean? And we'll try to hit it, but we are limited in our time. But I do have two weeks to do these two things, so I'm hopeful that, that the questions this week will be answered next week. So I believe John gives us this parable with a few clearly distinctive parts, and is more using the shepherding culture familiar to his audience to communicate truths. His main purpose in this passage can be divided into two perspectives. And forgive me because I know your notes are going to say one thing and I'm going to say another thing. Out of my notes, um, <clears throat> I personally try to turn in the notes by Friday morning. And, um, and then I do a lot of, the, a lot of refining and, and a lot of intense work for what I'm going to say here on Saturday. And so I kind of give a general outline and try to get that there on Friday morning. And then Saturday I'm working with this. So it gets tweaked a little bit. So if you have a few extra words, um, forgive me. So perspective one, Jesus addresses the current condition of the sheepfold, the shepherding culture, and how the sheep have been treated. Perspective two, he, Jesus declares that he himself is the correct way to understand the sheepfold 
and how the sheep will respond as he is making the sheepfold as it should be. Perspective one, here we go. Current condition of the sheepfold and how the sheep have been treated along with this shepherding culture that Jesus is using the illustration. Point one is that how one approaches the sheepfold matters, right? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And further down in in verse 8, he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. In verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. So those that come in a different way, those that would approach the sheepfold. So the sheepfold would be, more than likely, this is a communal sheepfold that's built inside of a city or a town where multiple flocks will be brought for the night. Okay? And they would have a wall on it, but probably not a roof, unless there was just a partially roofed area in case of rain. Um, and there would be a single door, and they would hire one of the under-shepherds to do the night shift, right? We do that all the time. I do it at work. There's work going on at night. Happen, happen, I'm getting one of the assistants to come in and, and fill my place because I'm not working overnight. Um, that's hard. That's young man's work. That's what I like to say. Um, so you would have one of the younger guys be there as the door keeper, right? And so the shepherd in the morning would come, and whichever shepherd would be would come. The doorkeeper would recognize him. He'd say, okay, I know that guy, open it. And then that shepherd would start calling his sheep. <clears throat> in our Western kind of culture, we have this idea of herding. And you see the cowboy movies, all that. And you have horses and you have dogs sometimes that herd. And sheep were, were done a lot with that, um, is, is herding with, with sheep, uh, herding sheep with dogs. But in, in their culture, in this Middle Eastern culture, you herded with your voice. So you would call the sheep, not only just call the sheep, call the sheep by name. So they would have a unique sound that they would make. And apparently a lot of the, the reading I did, it's, it's pretty interesting just to go watch it and just watch how in the midst of this sheepfold, the sheep's head would come up and they would know it's time to go in that morning. And his particular sheep would come to the door and they would follow him out. And the next shepherd would come. Well, if someone showed up, there wasn't a shepherd, the doorman would say, you're not the shepherd. Someone showed up that looked a lot like the shepherd and the doorman got confused. You'd open the door to him. But if that man called the sheep, the sheep wouldn't respond to him because they know the voice of the shepherd. And we call them dumb, right? But yet they have a a closeness to the shepherd, which I told you there's going to be a lot of overlap. Next week, those points will be much more highlighted in when Jesus talked about that he is the shepherd. So this is the the culture that that they had, and this is the uh, illustration Jesus uses. But there were some that just wanted sheep for their own purposes. They wanted sheep because they were selfish. And so they would climb over the walls, which probably weren't much higher than the the seven-foot doors we have in here, you know, because sheep are small. They don't get over and... um, you know, a wolf or something is going to try, but they're not going to give that much effort. They're going to go for an easier meal. And so they wouldn't, wouldn't have been much, very tall walls. So someone could climb over it and reach down and try to grab a sheep and steal a sheep for their own purposes. 
And that happened quite often. And it says that, that they're thieves and robbers. And, and you know, why give it you know, two classifications? Isn't it just stealing? Well, even in, even in our English words, and we define the words thief and robber, a thief is someone who is just selfishly taking something. A robber is someone who selfishly takes something by violence and force. So even in the, the selfishness they have, there's different intents. One, they're both being selfish. The second one has a malicious intent. And we'll see how that applies in a little bit. So the shepherd that entered by the door was known by the doorkeeper, known by the sheep, and leads the sheep and calls him by name. The current condition that, that Jesus approaches, whenever he starts using this, this picture of shepherding culture, is wrong. Y'all remember, and some of you um, got to see some of these things, some of you got to see these offhand. <clears throat> some of the houses after Katrina, the waters subsided, especially Lakeview houses and those houses that were inundated, Lower Ninth Ward and other places that had so much water in them. We would, we would go up to a house and you'd go to the front door. Sometimes you couldn't even open the front door. Uh, sometimes that was just swelling of the door and it had swollen because of the water. Sometimes it was because the couch was up against the door. And so you would have to go around another way and try to find a way in. And you'd walk into this house. The bedroom would be in the living room and the living room would be in the kitchen. And it was, it was just amazing. And you're like, wow, these people's lives were literally turned upside down. So Jesus comes in and, and he sees this condition of the sheepfold. He's like, this is wrong. So, so what, what's he talking about? Who's, who's his audience? What's he, what's he trying to get at here? Um, and I believe we have to look at two bookends here to get who Jesus is speaking to and who is the point of his presentation that this sheepfold is wrong. In John 9, verses 35 to 41, first of all, the, the first part of John 9, we get the healing of the blind man. Um, and then the rest of, the, of John 9 tells us how his interaction with the Pharisees and with the religious leaders of that day. They bring him in, says, how'd you get healed? Uh, well, God put clay on my eyes. And you know, who, who is he? I don't, I don't know. You know. All I know is he healed me. Um, and so then they bring in his parents. Like, he's a liar. He wasn't blind from birth. He's just faking, charlatan. And so they bring in his parents. And his parents are, are terrified because they've already given an edict. If you, if you claim that Jesus is, is healing people, if you claim Jesus has these qualities of the Messiah, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. So his parents are terrified. And they bring him in. And they're like, um, we don't know who or how he got healed, but we do know that he was blind from birth. He's old enough. You ask him. And they even want to separate themselves from the situation. So they bring the blind man back in. And they once again ask him, how are you healed? Who are you healed? And he starts, he's, he's frustrated at this point. He says, look, you keep asking me this. What are you, you're wanting to follow him? You're wanting to follow the healer? And they get completely irate. And they kick him out of the synagogue. And next day, Jesus says, Jesus heard that they cast him out in verse 35. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. 
Jesus makes a proclamation standing right there. And he says, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see me may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Immediately after this, Jesus goes into, Truly, truly, I say to you, The ones that enter the sheepfold that don't come by the door are thieves and robbers. Guess who he's addressing? The Pharisees directly. He's communicating. We get further confirmation down further in, in, verse, in uh, chapter 10, verse 19 and 21. He says, there again, a division arose among the Jews because of the words. And this is Jesus more talking about him being a shepherd. Many of them said, he has a demon. He is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So they're still in the same context of the healing of the blind man. And so Jesus is giving this information and this figure of speech he is using. And it says that they heard the figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. John made a little joke. Why didn't they understand? They weren't his sheep. Jesus just said, those that hear the the shepherd's voice know the shepherd's voice. But they didn't understand because they weren't his sheep. But his sheep that were listening that day in the crowd, that were listening to his words after that as John wrote them down and listening today, hear his voice and follow the shepherd. So I have uh, just a, a funny little word, I don't know, pl- word play that popped into my head. And, and we call them Pharisees, but obviously they're Pharaoh don't sees because <laughs> they're blind, you know. And, and then the, the sad you don't sees, right? It's really sad you don't see. But those, those two English words that we've made happen to flow with us. So... And this is not just these guys who are standing immediately in front of him, right? Because Jesus used the word, all uh, who come before me are thieves and robbers. And so there's, there's a system that was built by that time of Judaism um, that Jesus was standing in the midst of his people saying, this is wrong. This couch is in the wrong place. This, this bed frame is in the wrong place. This whole sheepfold is wrong. And I have come to correct it. I've come to give... The sheep peace have come to be the proper door into this sheepfold so people can see and enter. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6, gives us an interesting prophecy that I believe Jesus was using and John himself was uh, drawing from to make this passage, to write this passage in uh, John 10. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound out, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek for them. Right, and the rest of Ezekiel passage we'll also get into next week talking about God setting up his shepherd. So Judaism of Jesus' day had, had this controlling belief system. They made it into a self-defined self-serving machine for managing the people. They were misinterpreting the types and the shadows in the Old Testament. They'd use Moses to their own advantage. They'd take a, a passage of the Old Testament and say, no, 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 this is what it says. You must carry this. You must walk this way. You must post this up on your doors or else you're not a good Jew. Or else God will not accept you. And so they played upon the guilt in people's hearts. They played upon this desire for acceptance and forgiveness before God and used it for their own advantage. And they, they would take a, a part of Abraham, right? And they would say, no, 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 we are of the lineage of Abraham. So that's where you got into Jesus. And early on, we talked about in the unpredicated statement that Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. He wanted them to know that he has always been there. There were others that claimed at that, at that time and, and years before that they were the Messiah, that they were going to bring, bring peace to Judaism. And they would rise up and create war. And then they would be proven to be liars as they were, were killed. And, and they didn't fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. They were thieves and robbers. We see similar aspects of these selfish approaches to our relationship with God today, right? This is part of the, the humbling we get about hearing Jesus' truly, truly statements. That we get to see our own condition in the condition of the Pharisees. We often base our standing before God upon whether we've had a good day or not. If we got up on time, we had our quiet time, took time to be kind while driving, held our tongue from gossip, and had positive thoughts mostly throughout the day, we feel like God's favor is upon us. But if our day looks quite the opposite and we find sin oozing out of every direction, we feel like we're worthless and that we need to have a good day or two before we can get back into God's favor. And at both of those points, whether you are feeling like you've earned God's favor or that you discern God's favor, you're robbing God of His glory because God chose you, God called you while you were an enemy. Not while you were a friend, not while you did good. And guess what? Sin is always oozing out of you. It's one of the great things about God and sanctification is that He's always pressing us. He's always forming us. He's always creating um, these images of himself in us. And in order to do that, he's got to get us out of the way. And he's got he's to 
put us in situations that are going to refine us, put us in situations that are going to cause us to grow, right, to be fruitful. And, and this is an important aspect that um, God is, is in you, has saved you for his glory, and he is working out in each one of you an eternal weight of glory. In other words, you, will, you are currently building testimonies in your life that will be resounded in heaven for eternity. We'll find new ways for perfect illustration. These gentlemen that are getting up right now, going to usher for us. Thank you, Jamal, Daniel, Ronnie, ran out fast. Miguel, thank you. Their service this morning, as well as many of you who will also be serving, whether it's, it's greeting or uh, the sound or, or musicians or pastors, elders, however it is. The, we will find new aspects of these serving elements that Jesus will say, did y'all notice this about that in heaven? And they will resound for eternity. These are eternal weights of glory. Yes, Ronnie, we see you too. And love you dearly. Thank you for your service. Yes, amen. So why does Jesus say that he is the door of the sheepfold, right? We built this. All right, we understand. Here's the sheepfold. Here's the culture of shepherding. But why does Jesus say that he is the door? Isn't this confusing? Because then you got a door. Wait, he's not the one calling the voice. He's not the doorkeeper. It's, it's really, really challenging. But like I said, it's, it's not meant to have a whole lot of clear, distinct perspectives. What it is is meant to draw attention how the sheepfold currently was, and then draw attention to how Jesus was making the, keep, the sheepfold, how he intended the sheepfold from the beginning to be, to be cared for. And so he says that he is the door. B.B. Warfield uses this quote when he says, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber, richly furnished but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into, the, into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clear view much of what was in it, but was only dimly, or even not even at all perceived before. The mystery of the Trinity is not revealed in the Old Testament, but the mystery of the Trinity underlines the Old Testament revelation, and here and there almost comes into view. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation, which follows it, but only perfected, extended, enlarged. Jesus would say completed, fulfilled, right? So here we have what Jesus intended by saying that he is the door of the sheepfold. He said everything that has come before you was supposed to be built into this glorious realm, this Eden-like realm where he was the entrance. He's always been the entrance, right? The Old Testament comes to life as you read it in light of King Jesus. It is completed by King Jesus. It is understood by King Jesus. Completed by King Jesus. The New Testament is full of examples that the Old Testament was incomplete. Accordingly, the New Testament presents Jesus as the one who completes what was begun, but not finished in the Old Testament. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago, to the fathers and the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. And if we just follow the, the logic throughout the book of Hebrews in, in a quick glance, 
The writer of Hebrews sees Christ as the climactic, eschatological, prophetic voice of his written word. And that means that Jesus is the new, new, Abraham, new Adam in Hebrews 2. He's better than Moses in Hebrews 3. He's better than the priests of the Old Testament, Hebrews 5 and 7. He executes a covenant better than the Old Covenant, Hebrews 8. He is a sacrifice better than the Old Testament sacrifices in Hebrews 10. The reason why Jesus is better than the Old Testament is that what he does is irreversible and eternal. It's not temporary. It's not passing away. Abraham passed away. Moses passed away. The animal sacrifices were meant for a season and a time to point to the Messiah who would come. These things passed away. They were not eternal. So we're also to understand the Old Testament through King Jesus. King Jesus is also the means. This is the door, right? This is our entrance into the Old Testament and understanding. King Jesus is also the means to understand the patterns, the promises, and the presence that we see in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of patterns, right? From creation that gets overlaid onto the building of the tabernacle, that gets overlaid on the building of the temple, to the ark, to the choosing of a particular man to be his man who would have a multitude of nations come for him for a blessing for the whole earth. To the Passover, Right? And the pattern of the, the Passover would carry once a, once a year as they celebrated that this lamb who was slain would cover by its blood the sins of that household. And the death angel would pass over and not, not kill the firstborn. From the Passover to crossing the Red Sea, to the tabernacle, to the promised land, to the judges to a king and a kingdom, to the prophets and to the wisdom that all pointed to a Messiah. And as we see King Jesus and we stand, enter through the doorway of him into the Old Testament, these patterns come to life and they start to pop all over that you can see Genesis overlaid in in Leviticus. And you can see all of them overlaid in the life of David. Over and over again. I encourage you. This is, a, this is a broad sweep that I can do this morning. But I encourage you to start looking for these patterns. Looking through the door of King Jesus at the sheepfold that he designed in this Old Testament. And just see the beauty. Um, we are currently in our uh, Bible study on Thursday nights going through the book of Leviticus. Which, right, it's, that's a lot of blood. That's a lot of rules. That's a lot of stuff that... Man, you get in there and it's like, what? Where does, where does that fit? How does that fit? But as you start to see that, and I'm, I knew I was going to get sidetracked, so I'll just do it, get it over, pull off the band-aid, right? Um, here is God, and he wants to be with his people. That's amazing. <laughs> and so he sets up, And gives Moses this instruction how to build this place where God, the God of the universe, is going to dwell with his people. But he's dwelling with this people, right? This people that look a lot like us, that are selfish and 
worried and anxious and, and going about our own ways over and over again. And so he had to make a way for them to approach. He had to make a way for them to be intentional. And not just intentional, but that it would be costly and intentional. And so we come on Sunday mornings and it, it costs us time here. It costs us intentionality. We bring our offerings in to God as worship to Him. And we're intentional with those. And they cost us because we, we dwell with the living God. And these are, these are grateful things that we give. You know, when you serve, uh, these, these elements of um, uh, just so many times that the ladies getting together praying uh, every Friday. I mean, it's just, this is intentionality. It costs them, but the reaping reward that they have as they commune with the living God for us, it's amazing. It's so valuable, such a thing. So even in Leviticus, even in uh, Numbers, in Second Chronicles, you get, but if you start seeing the patterns and, and the, the way that Jesus opens the word to us in the Old Testament, um, you'll start to understand it a lot better and appreciate it a lot better. Secondly, the promises. Um, we are understanding through the door of King Jesus the promises. Second Corinthians one twenty says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen, our truly, to God for His glory. From the promise of a seed in Genesis 3.15, that the seed would come, crush the head of the serpent, but be bruised. So it would cost him something to have his victory. So from the promise of the seed to the promise of the blessing for all nations, to the promise of their, to be their God and they be his people, to the promise that he would go with them, to a promise to make a way for God to dwell with his people, to the promise of the one who would keep the law completely, to the promise of a land that God would give them, to the promise of conquest, to the promise to establish a king that would rule forever, to a promise that a baby would be born of a virgin in a specific place, at a specific time, and the government would be upon his shoulders, to a promise of a suffering servant, the Son of Man, that would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, to a promise to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. The Old Testament promises are fulfilled in King Jesus. And His entrance in that doorway is how we see it. And then thirdly, the presence. The New Testament is clear that King Jesus is present from beginning to end in the Old Testament, from the word that was in the beginning, as we see in John 1, to the I am in whom Abraham rejoiced in John 8, to the one who Moses considered the wealth of reproach to be better than the treasures of Egypt in Hebrews 11, to the Redeemer who brought them out of Egypt in Jude 5, to the rock in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10, to the king in Isaiah's temple in John 12, to the one that could be expounded upon on the road to Emmaus, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he opens their eyes and, and hearts to see himself. Luke 24. To the testimony of Paul, to the small and great, as to what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Messiah must suffer and be raised in Acts 26. To the person in whom the prophets searched and inquired carefully for, 
as the spirit of Christ was burning in their hearts to discover who and what this good news was about in 1 Peter 1. From beginning to end, the testimony of the Bible is that the life is found in King Jesus. And it is designed by God the Father to be that way. And it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, though we don't have an enumeration of the Trinity in the Old Testament, the Trinity is in the Old Testament. It is alive. It is vibrant. And it is resounding through the pages. It opens the Word to us. And we can see God in the details. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus gives us a glimpse of how God's sheepfold should have operated, right? Jesus says, I am the door, right? Those that enter through me, they will be saved. And they will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. His sheep will live and thrive. When we understand the patterns, the promises, and the presence of King Jesus throughout the scriptures, we hear his voice calling us and believe in his life, death, and resurrection as our only hope of salvation. We enter in and dwell in Jesus' sheepfold so that when we go out into the world, we also have that, that security, that freedom that causes other people to say, why do you have hope? Where is that hope coming from? How do you have such strength and security in the midst of this circumstance? Because I belong to the shepherd. And that's why we will pick up next week that, that Jesus is the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the 66 books of the Bible, the men that you inspired to write them. God, that we have your infallible, inerrant word that we can base our lives upon, that we can hear from you. God, we know that it is living. We know that it is active. God, we come today and we want that living, active word to be in us, to be drawing us closer to you and sending us out into the world, God, to love them, God, because we know that in all these things, God, that you have placed your love upon us and we want that to be oozing out all over our people. So God, keep us, keep us humble. God, keep us worshiping you. God, keep us intentional uh, in, our, in our study, in our communications. God, in our offerings that we bring before you. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Thank you for King Jesus. Amen.